Hello and namaste. I'm Peter Furco, and this is Peter's Podcast, where we talk about real yoga, actual happiness, and deep living. Thanks for joining me. And now we continue with incarnation. India, 1988. Kamalita Singh lived in the town below the ashram and sometimes accompanied her mother, a florist who provided flowers for the buildings where Krishna Anand attended Guru Kula. Kamalita's deep brown eyes first noticed Krishna four years ago, staring at her from behind the corner of the dining building. He ducked back behind the corner and she turned her gaze ahead to allow him to resume his admiration. Ever since she was a young girl, she noticed how boys looked at her. At first, she felt like she did something wrong because they seemed guilty as they turned away or looked down at the ground as she passed. When she reached puberty, she became interested in the television shows that poured from her parents' color Sony, shows that explained what she had been experiencing, not explicitly, but by showing the prevalent effect. She saw how the TV starlets used this reaction as power over boys. Kamalita began talking about her experiences with her girlfriends, who had experienced similar reactions in varying degrees. She seemed to have an abundance of power over boys, and while the girlfriends did not expressly rank each other, Kamalita held an esteemed position as the holder of the highest degree of seductive power. Of all the boys and men who seemed to fall under her sway, Krishna Anand made her feel different. While she was happy to experience her power with others, Kamalita looked forward to playing magnet to Krishna's eyes. She felt that he had a power over her too, and wondered if this was how the attraction she wielded fell to others. She asked her mother if scientists studied what made people feel. Kamalita's mother, Angarika, was not unaware of the effect her daughter's appeal had on the opposite sex, nor was she unfamiliar with the sensations, being even more beautiful than her quite lovely daughter. The mother took a special interest in the budding curiosity that was developing between her daughter and the teenager Krishna Anand. She knew that Krishna's father was a businessman in nearby Bangalore, and as a mother was intrigued by the possibility that Kamalita could marry into such a family. To secure Krishna, Angarika began cultivating Kamalita's skills in seduction. While it may have been possible for their families to arrange a wedding, it was unlikely. Angarika had lost her husband several years ago, and though they were very well off for a family in Tumkur, they offered no special appeal compared to the numerous families in Anand's hometown. No, she would use the love approach which was gaining popularity in India thanks to the prevalence of American television programs and the corresponding Western influence on Indian film and TV. Angarika gave her daughter lessons in how to walk with balance of allure and decorum so as to maximize her appeal while avoiding appearing promiscuous. She taught her how to address the object of her affection using the downturned eyes that Kamalita had witnessed in the boys who were attracted to her and how to look up at Krishna when her head was tilted down to increase the power of her magnetism. She taught her subtle makeup techniques that enhanced her daughter's dark eyes with lines outlining the lower lid. Her daughter was a willing but slow student, shy by nature, and more adept at science than dramatics. Krishna Anand's father made a phone call to his son. The period of his gurukula was concluding, 
and Krishna's very traditional father expected his son to turn to studies of the family business. Krishna had little interest in the small chain of inns that his father maintained for business travelers. The stucco boxes with their neat and clean lines looked like boring buildings Krishna saw in the movies shot in Hollywood. While he had done one interesting project for his father's business, setting up a computerized reservation system, most of the work he had done for the hotel chain felt like failed efforts for his unsatisfiable father. The conversation between the Anand's father and son was not very fruitful and ended with an ultimatum concerning money, university, and relocation. As the phone call ended, Krishna imagined his father plopping his compact but substantial weight onto the divan next to Krishna's mother and delivering his typical oratory about how no one saw how hard he worked to provide opportunities for his son. Angarika heard rumors that Krishna would be heading back to Bangalore shortly. She was unwilling to let go of such a good opportunity for her daughter and tried to accelerate their training program, condensing her life's knowledge of bringing men under one spell into a one-week crash course. Angarika arranged for a meeting between the two teens on a day that coincided with Mr. Anand's arrival in town to collect his son. It was a simple plan. Let Kamalita show Krishna that she was open to a proposal. Let Mr. Anand see that his son was in love with Angarika's daughter. The stage would be set for continued discussion even if the Anands were back home in Bangalore. Invitations were sent and accepted, leaving the challenge in Kamalita's court. Her mother was not confident of Kamalita's ability to rise to this challenge. She hurriedly contrived a plan in which she would always be nearby to help Kamalita maximize her chances through a suggested line or act. There was no time to organize a formal means of communicating these Cyrano de Bergerac-isms, so Angarika was going to aim to continually find pretenses to be in the presence of the lovers-to-be. On the day of the meeting, Krishna arrived first and was ushered into a sitting room with Kamalita. The seduction got off to an immediate bad start. Angarika's direction to tilt her head down while looking up was interpreted so awkwardly by the nervous girl that Krishna became concerned. Kamalitaji, whatever is the matter with your neck? Do you need me to send for help? She gasped and transformed her gaping mouth into a sort of laugh. I'm so embarrassed, I dropped an earring and was trying discreetly to look for it on the floor. Krishna came to her aid. Let me help you find it. Angarika was listening just outside the doorway of the sitting room and hurriedly came in, claiming to be looking for a letter she had left on the desk. Kamalita and Krishna were both crawling around by the sofa looking for the earring that Kamalita had securely in her earlobe. Krishna yelped when he ripped a hole in his trousers on a bent nail protruding from the lower edge of the sofa. It had been one of the flower-headed furniture tacks that secured the upholstery, but had lost its head in a rearranging last year. Kamalita crawled close to him and began pushing the edges of the tear together as though it would somehow return to its untorn state by suggestion. Angarika, who had crossed past the searching teenagers to the desk, removed one of her own earrings and turned back toward the sofa. Oh, look, darling, here's your earring. Kamalita grabbed for her own ear, confused by her mother's ploy. Her mother hissed at her and then smiled at the boy. Kamalita was confused but followed her mother's lead. Come, have some lassi, Angarika said, inviting them toward the desk, which was previously set with the yogurt and mango refreshment, as well as some other treats. Yes, please, Krishna said, rising to his feet and taking Kamalita's hand to help her up. 
Being so close on the floor with her hands on his leg had triggered his teen hormones, and he felt an embarrassing pressure against the inside of his pants. Realizing he was standing with his pants bulging at Kamalita's face, he spun toward the desk, which gave her a swift pull up to her feet. As soon as they took a step, Kamalita's sari held her back. It had been snagged on the same beheaded upholstery nail when she was helping Krishna. The magnetism of the lassie had encouraged enough forward force in the teens that the resistance from behind threw the young girl off balance, and she stumbled headlong into Krishna. He clutched at her to stave off his own fall, but only got a handful of satin as he dropped. The pull of the strapping boy and the upholstery nail combined were quite effective at unfurling Kamalita's purple sari. She spun to her knees nearly naked astride young Krishna. Angarika lunged from behind the desk to save them, failing to help, but succeeding in knocking over the crystal decanter of gin that she had set out to offer Krishna's father. When a moment later, Angarika's houseman presented Mr. Anand to the seemingly empty room, there was giggling coming from the other side of the sofa and an aroma that reminded him of a tavern he used to frequent as a student in Mumbai. He took a few steps toward the laughter, where he saw a quite beautiful backside of a girl rolling off his son. They were giggling with what he could only assume was post-sexual bliss, while lying mermaid-style propped on one elbow was a woman spouting a drunken mix of fragmented phrasings, including breasts, your training, and coming very quickly. Have you invited me to a brothel, boy? Mr. Anand said to his son, his tone somewhere between annoyance and confusion. Oh my goodness, Mr. Anand, Angarika shouted, and began to get up. Kamalita shot up onto her feet with Krishna quickly at her side. He embraced her in a chivalrous move to cover her nakedness, but her mother quickly pulled her away and hurried her out of the room. Father, you don't understand. I do not understand the strange sexual habits of modern people, that is certain. Let's go. But Father, wait, I love Kamalita. This was all an unfortunate accident. Mr. Anand replied, just as Angarika and a redressed Kamalita entered the room. My former ultimatum to you is now expanded. See these harlots again, and I will cut you off completely. A scene from a Bollywood movie flashed before Krishna's eyes, the protagonist in a similar dilemma, providing a model of rebellion and an answer to his father. But Krishna hesitated to be so bold. He looked at Kamalita. Her eyes met his, and then she looked to the ground. Her mother stepped forward to speak, but Mr. Anand raised a hand to silence her and stormed from the room. Krishna followed two steps behind. Five hours later, Krishna Anand and his father stepped off the train in Bangalore. They had not spoken a word, though Krishna had numerous conversations to himself, some with imagined responses from his father, some with imagined responses from Kamalita, some with facets of himself. None was very satisfying. The facet of Krishna that feared losing the support of his family was winning out over the Bollywood facet. That latter talked a good alternative, but had no plan past the end of 90 minutes. No, Krishna would learn the family business, and as his guru had said, life would adjust. Maybe he would find this TV show ending playing out in a satisfying manner after all. New York, 1998. Joey and Ryoko both went to college at the City University of New York. He dabbled in writing and visual arts, then ultimately settled on a theater degree. After graduation, his parents' reputation and contacts, his father was a poet and his mother a critic, 
gave him a leg up on having calls returned, and he started getting parts in plays and small films. That professional experience, combined with stellar recommendations from his teachers, helped him get into Yale for graduate school, and he got a scholarship that made it possible to attend. Joey found grad school satisfying on many levels. He liked the dramaturgical aspect of theater that he never had access to in his work as an actor. He took several classes in directing and became fascinated with creating an entire worldview within the theater. He took a film directing class that was built around creating a short film. Joey's film was about a homeless man who could talk to dogs. The man used his... The man uses his skill to help find cast-off things of value and ultimately recovers a famous painting of a family and their dog that has been stolen by a two-bit burglar and hidden in an alley. He returns the painting, and the gratitude of the owners and police leads to a happy ending to a quirky story. Joey loved filmmaking and wanted to do more of it. When Joey and Ryoko got married, right after he finished at Yale, Joey found himself in a dilemma. A former acting buddy had sold a pilot of a situation comedy and wanted Joey to play the lead. It was like a dream come true to the Joey of a couple years ago, but he was so interested in the directorial direction he'd been exploring that he didn't want to go back to acting. He talked to Ryoko about it, but the empathy that served them so well in their relationship only reflected back his own pros and cons and provided him no new information or direction. He went to ask his father. Son, Your mother was a pragmatist. She always looked at things strategically. I, on the other hand, wish I could do that, but I always just go into a fantasy where you do what you want to do. Isn't that what she did, Dad? I mean, she left us and ran off to Paris, he said, risking upsetting his father by bringing up his mother's affair with Rusty, a Francophile film director who had been in their circle of friends when Joey was a boy. Archie paused at the mention of the decades-old infidelity, Yes, but Janet didn't do it because of fantasy. She did it because she had everything she wanted, career, husband, son, and lover. She had no doubt that leaving would lose her nothing and gain her an end to the boredom she felt from our marriage. He continued, She always told me to be idealistic and write poetry, but do more pragmatic work too, like writing reviews, teaching classes. Look how prolific she was as a critic. She used to say, Use the other work to fund your poetry and stop bumming off me. The last line surprised Joey. He never thought of his father as being in need of financial support, and it stung him because he'd been leaning on Ryoko with her reporting job to pay for anything beyond rent. So he took the sitcom gig, but used Ryoko's pet name for him, Joey Ko, when registering with the union. That way he thought he could do this insignificant acting work under a stage name, but direct as Joseph Jones later. Through the show's success, though, Joey Coe became a very big star. That's it for today's excerpt. You can hear more later on in Peter's podcast. Or if you just can't wait, head over to Amazon.com where you can find Incarnation. Thanks. Thanks.